Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, people are always coming up to me and they're saying, Ben, you know, what's your favorite moment ever with Andrew? And I know constantly when you're just like at the store on your runs, people are always coming up to you and saying, hey, Andrew, what's your favorite <laughs> moment with Ben throughout the entirety of your years long friendship and partnership? And I know we always get the same answer, don't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky. Okay. Cause I, I would have two answers. Number one is when I first proposed the podcast in Toronto at all-star weekend and you ignored me, but number two, if we're, if we're thinking more recent and, and really like when we were actually podcast partners, it clearly was LeBronzo at summer league in like late July this past summer. That was, that was the peak. So look, we're at the part of our friendship here, Andrew, where we need to forget about the ugly early incident, okay? We need to move past <laughs> and then we need to like get that one out of the memory bank. I know it's kind of scarred you, but let's focus more positively. Of course, the answer we always give is LeBronzo at Summer League because the tension in the in the building was palpable. I mean, here you have, you know, LeBron and a year's worth of free agency rumors, you know, potentially ahead of him watching Lonzo and Lonzo's balling like crazy and the future of the Lakers finally seems like it's going to matter and there's this real buzz in a gym that rarely has buzz. That's why we loved it. And I'm here to tell you, Andrew, that LeBron's weekend in Los Angeles, basically his only swing through LA other than the All-Star break uh this year mm-hmm. uh was basically the exact opposite of that i mean look people were excited to see lebron he got the standing ovation but in terms of the buzz factor in terms of the excitement around you know what's going on with lebron and even lebron's own excitement it was just not there it was kind of a dud weekend they got smoked by the clippers on friday night deandre jordan goes for a 2020 they got run off the court in the second half by the young lakers uh, on Sunday night, LeBron kind of settled for individual moments of brilliance here and there, kind of making DeAndre Jordan look silly with a, a pump fake. And, you know, obviously that no look pass that everyone saw, uh, you know, but other than that, there wasn't that signature takeover performance. And LeBron did not seem to want to lay out the breadcrumbs about a possible LA move this summer either. He was very reserved in his comments, kind of hiding almost in the locker room after both games. It was strange, Andrew. It was not what I was expecting, given that I had this weekend circled on my calendar for what, you know, seven months since the start of the season? Yeah, I mean, you were there both nights. Can I tell you my favorite part of the of the weekend from you was Friday night, you posted on Instagram, on, on the stories, your new favorite place, your new favorite forum, uh, you had Juju Smith-Schuster, who is courtside recruiting LeBron to come play for the Steelers. And then I followed up with you afterwards just to confirm that you had to Google Juju Smith-Schuster because you had no idea who that was. But I like it. That's that's you going the extra mile for your Instagram followers. Look, never had heard of him. I heard some fans <laughs> scream out his name, Juju, which obviously narrowed things down considerably. Uh, not the easiest name in the world to spell. And I right. had to make sure I got the, the team right as well, you know, because I do boycott the NFL. <laughs> His recruiting campaign, you know, he did a fairly good job of getting himself into the mix. And clearly, like everyone realizes if there's a LeBron free agency angle, 
Uh, let's get into it. So you've got like these entrepreneurs putting up billboards. Oh yeah, I'm trying to recruit LeBron, but really I'm just trying to drive traffic to my website. Uh, Juju was all in on that. I'm sure his follower counts, uh, <laughs> you know, really spiked over the last couple of days. But I want to go back to LeBron's post game situations in LA because it was very okay. strange, Andrew. Would you agree with me, like in terms of the two media maestros of recent NBA history? It's Kobe and LeBron, right? I mean, those are the two guys. No question. Yeah, and I I kind of have a theory for why this weekend was sort of underwhelming. Um, but I'll let you take me take me into the locker room with LeBron, and then we I'll give you my theory. So everyone knows about it. there's all these tunnels in the Staples Center because of the Clippers fight and all that, right? Look, mm-hmm. there is ample room to conduct a press conference if you want to conduct a press conference. I mean, sometimes they they have the Lakers and like Kobe, his final year, he basically had a table and a microphone and like five rows of reporters filling a room and he's taking questions in three languages every single game, you know, every home game for that entire season. Usually LeBron will come out to the hallway. That way you have more room for the the scrum. But after both losses, he basically is like ducking back in the corner of a very small and tiny crowded visiting locker room at Staples Center. And so what that meant was, you know, 40, 50 uh, writers, videographers or whatever are all trying to cram and storm into Cleveland's locker room. So first of all, the Cavs PR people were like name-checking reporters one by one, saying, you can go in, you can go in. It was like the VIP line at a club, you know, who could get the the preferential access in terms of where they were going to stand for LeBron's post-game scrum. And then after that happened, the floodgates opened. People are like storming over Kyle Korver, like basically knocking him out of the way so they could get to a a better angle to hear kind of LeBron (laughs) mumble through his post-game comments. And look, LeBron is a master like Kobe. I mean, he was intentionally... Uh, trying to downplay the whole situation, and it worked because, frankly, he he didn't face that many questions at all about you know possible Lakers future. Uh, he didn't say hardly anything, and it really seemed like you know other than the shoes he was wearing, you know the Hollywood Nike sneakers, which you know I predicted those last summer. I told you he was going to have all the L.A. colorways. Remember that? Uh, it just seemed like he didn't want this to be a scene, and I think part of it is because Cleveland is so injured and they're not playing very well. They have no real chemistry at this moment because of, you know, half the rotations out. But I think also part of it was, it seemed to me like LeBron was wanting everyone else to kind of fill in the vacuum with the theories rather than looking like the bad guy for stoking that sentiment. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. It seems like you went there expecting there to be more of a scene when in reality, had LeBron done his LeBron thing and dropped a a bunch of breadcrumbs about LA this summer, I think it would have been pretty obnoxious, especially at this point in the season. The playoffs are a month away. It it would have been a bad look for him to to give like cryptic answers about the summer. And I'm glad that he didn't. Um, I also think... Actually, I'm curious, before we move on, what reporters were best at at cornering him in the locker room? Basically nobody, because, you know, I mean, people were fighting over each other physically to, like, get angles. I mean, (laughs) it was, like, I I I I heard there were, like, 200 reporters in there. Yeah, not that many, but there was probably 50. And let me just paint the room. I mean, imagine a studio apartment in a big city. You know, uh-huh. that's about as big as the visitor's locker room is. And so remember, you've got not only the whole roster of players, 
Uh, but you've also got all the coaches, all the assistant staff and everything else. And so usually what would happen with LeBron, like during the playoffs is he just takes an hour to get ready and goes to a podium, right? Yeah. Usually what would happen during the regular season is he takes half an hour to get ready and then he comes out, you know, fully dressed and stands in front of a bank of cameras in the hallway and it's not nearly as crowded and people can kind of stand comfortably. I mean, this was like everyone jam packed into this tiny little room and LeBron seated uh, and, you know, like I said, mumbling, I mean, not making it very clear. So everyone's jockeying, trying to, to, uh, you know, get closer. And on top yeah. of that, you've got the Cavs PR circling this and like booting people out for taking still pictures. Cause supposedly you're still not supposed to do that in the NBA. So in the back of like the audio, you know, if you listen back to it, there's like people being ejected for breaking NBA rules <laughs> uh, in this media scrub. So look, it was just chaos. And I think, LeBron was just not having any part of it. And it seemed intentional, right? Like he is so good at setting whatever story he wants to set. And he chose on both Friday night, which wasn't quite as crazy as Sunday night with the Lakers. But then again, on Sunday night, when it was the Lakers, he chose to just take a pass. You know, he didn't want to make any stories. He was trying his darndest to, to stay out of the headlines. And I think you're right. I think some of it is just reputation management. Uh, but yeah. I also think some of it went along with he didn't play that great. You know, I mean, he he was solid in both those games. He got his numbers, but he wasn't going super hard. And he didn't turn in one of those like takeover performances like he did against the Nuggets last week. He didn't right. have one of those in the chamber. And uh, I think for that reason, you know, he's starting to get bummed by the by the talent around him. I think he he was asked directly, are the Cavaliers going the right direction? And he said, you don't know you don't know. So, you know, essentially passing on the question, you know, not even trying to do a half-hearted optimism. And, you know, from, from that standpoint, I came away with a couple of takeaways. One, like I said earlier, it seemed like he wanted the reporters to do the rumor mongering. He didn't want to feed into it, but uh-huh. also two, I think he feels like maybe Cleveland's running out a little bit of time here. You know, this is the worst team he's played on record wise uh, you know, since basically before his last decision, 2008. I mean, that's a decade of teams that have been better than his current team. These guys are banged up left and right. Uh, the chemistry was missing. I mean, he's, you know, guys are cutting in the way of his passes. So he's throwing the ball off teammates who, who aren't expecting it. Guys are blowing his assists with missed dunks and missed wide open three pointers. The defense has been a train wreck all season. It's not getting better as these injuries mount up. Uh, there was some evident frustration from him on the court, pounding the basketball, uh, you know, a couple of times heading towards timeouts and kind of looking around miffed at at uh, some of the defensive missed assignments by his teammates. It was just, uh, you know, it was not the LeBron takes Hollywood story that maybe some people like myself expected. Okay, um, so I have two responses. Number one, while I trust your impressions wholeheartedly, uh, I will say that watching from afar and following along on Twitter, I did see the photo of Magic Johnson and Rich Paul and Maverick Carter and get very excited about the possibilities for how insane this could be if LeBron did end up in Los Angeles next year, just because of the constant attention that like basically every move it would be like palace intrigue times a hundred and we've already been doing this with the lakers the last two or three years and i'm sure a lot of people would roll their eyes at this but i am rooting for this to get as ridiculous as possible and i think adding adding rich paul and mav carter to the mix with magic would make it so much fun um and it would be a a disaster and if i were a lakers fan i'm not sure i'd be rooting for it but uh but it would be a lot of fun 
Number two, yeah, though, they- specific to this specific to this weekend, I do think that we're just in a spot around the NBA where everyone is kind of exhausted, and I think it's hard for anyone to get their energy up. And I think the Cavs are certainly the highest profile example of that. But I think most teams around the league are just kind of looking a little flat right now. And we're just in sort of a dead zone of the NBA calendar where there's, it's, it's harder to get hyped up. And that's why, I mean, you and I have gone back and forth on the Cavs like five or six different times. And I just don't want to do it again. The Cavs whiplash is wearing me out. It's like, I, I grant you that this is the the least talented roster that that LeBron has had since he returned to Cleveland. But I also think that there are going to be pieces around him in a playoff series that will help more than they probably did in LA this weekend. And I think once he gets fully engaged, he's still going to be a really tough out like. At, at every stage of the playoffs if they make the finals he's not going down easy and so i just don't want to overreact to 10 days of kind of listless calves basketball yeah i don't think i'm necessarily doing that i mean I, i've been the staunchest you're pro not Cavs but i think person. a lot of people have yeah. been yeah no but i do think this year is different i mean just because of the chemistry factor because of the lack of star power i mean each individual guy who gets healthy tristan thompson kevin love rodney hood uh, even, you know, Osmond, all those guys are going to help once they're back on the court, but they don't have this huge run-up anymore where they can get all these guys back on the same page together. Uh, it's going to feel very much like LeBron and, and the LeBronettes. You know, I think that's going to be the postseason vibe uh, this year, even more than the year when everybody got injured uh, and when he first got there. And I think there's more talent. I mean, to me, like the Raptors are a better team than he's faced uh, in past, uh, you know, postseasons. The Celtics taking all these injury issues are certainly going to help LeBron. Uh, but I think he's going to face a tougher first round test, you know, wherever they wind up than he's had in recent years. And so uh, I am much, I'm looking very much forward to seeing LeBron back in sixth gear rather than sort of coasting as he did through uh, the weekend and just kind of coasting through the postgame interviews, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Hey, one quick follow-up point, though, on a point you made about the Palace intrigue and, and Magic and Rich Paul and all of that. Yeah. For the people who are still in the camp of LeBron to the Lakers is a crazy concept, the only point I would make on that is if you go back exactly four years ago at this stage, Cleveland, like the idea of LeBron returning to Cleveland was crazier on basically every level than the idea of LeBron going to LA is right now. I mean, consider Dan Gilbert was still the bad guy. Uh, Mike Brown was the coach. He was about to get fired. You had Kyrie and Deion Waiters fighting in the locker room. You had a a brand new uh, (laughs) GM in David Griffin. Yeah. And Cleveland had been terrible for four years straight and their young pieces didn't necessarily fit together that well. And they hadn't yet won the number one pick. If you look at the Lakers, I mean, I think their young guys fit pretty well together. If it's Lonzo, uh, Kuzma, and Ingram, uh, you know, I don't see the personality clashes that Cleveland's uh, guys have had. You look at Luke Walton, I think he survived, uh, you know, some flack already this season, and he's shown progress in year two. He has a very clear vision of how he wants to play. Guys like Magic and Palinka, I think you can make a pretty good case that. Uh, in terms of their connections and, and the moves they've made so far, they've been logical. They've been pretty meticulous in terms of what they're trying to do to set things up for this summer. Yeah. And 
even though the Lakers don't have like a number one pick like the Cavs got with Andrew Wiggins, they do have the potential to have a, another max slot so that LeBron's not just going there to be the only star. I mean, there's the potential to really add his, uh, some help to him uh, there as well. On top of that, you've got super, uh, you know, longstanding ownership group with the Bus family. Uh, you don't have any of that personality conflicts between LeBron and Dan Gilbert that's existed in Cleveland. So, while I think LeBron is going to have better options, I mean, to me, Houston and San Antonio are both better options than the Lakers. I think we can say at this point right now, the Lakers, you know, it's not a crazy concept. I mean, certainly to me, it makes more sense for him to go from Cleveland to L.A. at this stage right now than it did four years ago for him to go from Miami to Cleveland. I think the Miami to Cleveland jump uh, was actually riskier, and it involved more moving pieces than moving to the Lakers would right now. Yeah, I mean, I would also add that I, I think I would probably put L.A. and Cleveland as the two most realistic uh, destinations for LeBron this summer. I don't really see Philly happening, um, and I don't see Houston or San Antonio in part because I think LeBron's always playing chess and not checkers. And I think that those, those are almost too obvious uh, for him, but either way, it will be fun to watch. I'm, I'm sad that you didn't have more of a surreal atmosphere LeBronzo part two, but maybe that'll come this summer at, at summer league. You know, we could always dream, um, but we should move on to some of the other contenders. Are you, are you down? I am. And the one thing I'd say just to close it is it was kind of sad, Andrew. I mean, it was like his only friend left standing was J.R. Smith. You know, Dwayne Wade's <laughs> gone. Kevin Love's injured. All these other teammates who have been, you know, through those doors are basically either not there or sideline. And so it's sort of like, you know, J.R.'s his only friend, the last friend he's got left. And, you know, they they have their cool handshakes and their funny little shooting the basketball through LeBron's arms, sort of like pregame ritual that they do. But it, it was kind of sad. Well, it was not what I expected. Yeah. And it and felt look, a little bit like a letdown. I don't blame him at all for looking around that locker room and being like, what the hell happened? I'm sure everyone on the Cavs is feeling that way. I would just say that speaking of history, like if you go back the last two or three marches, we've had these same conversations about the Cavs and how crappy they looked. I mean, last year's version of the Cavs with Kyrie was hemorrhaging points and and there were all kinds of conversations about whether a team that bad on defense could ever like there weren't historical parallels of a, of a team at that level making a finals run and so we just we go through this every year and at some point it is going to happen and LeBron's going to miss the finals and uh, all the skeptics are going to be right I'm just sort of like out on that whole conversation and until further notice um until no. until they're down two or three games in a playoff series i'm, I'm kind of like pressing pause on Cavs panic fair enough i'm not panicking but i do think they're more vulnerable this year than they were last year i never they felt were. they were vulnerable in the in the east last year yeah and these guys got to get right and they got to be out there and and get some chemistry because it's lacking right now all right anyway let's move on yeah so moving on to the other contender that is not nearly as vulnerable byron says everyone keeps talking about how many games the rockets have won and how unbeatable they are with harden paul and capella I get it. We need the drama. But am I being a buzzkill in pointing out that the Warriors are right up there with them in wins despite half-assing it for almost the entire season? And currently the, the, the Warriors are one and a half games behind the Rockets in case anyone's curious. And it's a good question. It's a really good point because 
it's true that Golden State has basically been going through the motions for the last four or five months. Steph Curry has missed extended time. I mean, for them to be right there with the Rockets does sort of speak volumes about what they really have and and what they could look like or what the gap could look like when Golden State actually turns it on. Well, I think we've always said Golden State has the highest ceiling of any team, right? And we would definitely agree that Golden State in sixth gear is is significantly better than Houston in sixth gear. And uh, so I I agree with the, the central premise of his question. I'm not sure people are missing that, though. I mean, has there been somebody out there who's really been like, you know, concerned trolling the Warriors lately? I well, mean, I, I don't know if that voice is there. I think, I mean, I think I, the, the main point, though, is it should be terrifying to everyone that the Warriors can, can half-ass it for an entire year and still be on pace to win, like, 65 or 67 games. I agree with that. Um, how concerned are you about these Steph ankle injuries? I mean, it's a real situation at this point. I mean, there's been enough separate incidents here over the course of the season where... I think you you have to wonder, can he make it through an entire postseason, even if they're sweeping consistently in some of those rounds without something flaring up? Dude, right? And I think if I were if I ran the Warriors or were involved in the like brain trust out there, I just would keep him bubble wrapped until like the first week in April. But just keep him on the sidelines. You don't have anything to really play for. I don't think they're gonna end up catching the Rockets for the the one seed and it probably doesn't matter anyways. Like I'm just not sure what the incentive is to to have him out there. Um and I'm sure they're gonna be super cautious regardless. But uh but yeah, I am concerned about the ankle injuries. I mean like Steph is is obviously the most dominant not I don't know I don't know I don't know how you would describe him but he's been the most successful individual player over the last four years of the NBA and I think that you just have to be super super cautious going forward because yeah take him off the floor and suddenly the whole playoff picture starts to shift a little bit yeah, and you could tell he's starting to get frustrated too. Like the last one, he just had this that look on his face of like, "Oh no, not again." Yeah, and, and I wonder you know, whether part of that is because he knows that the Warriors are going to be like extremely cautious, and so he tweaks an ankle, and he's like, "Well, shit, now I'm going to be out for another month." That's like Kerr is not is not going to let me play because I'm sure he feels like he could play like this week. Yeah, possibly. Or he's just thinking like, this is really annoying. I, I can't get right. I can't get a full month straight where I could just dominate the league and, you know, yeah, uh, get back to that 2015 type prime uh, that he was at, you know, consistently for a full season. I think um, the question about Golden State's ceiling isn't as important as the question about Steph's health. So sorry to push back on Byron here, but if Steph can't stay completely healthy throughout the entire postseason you know and he did basically last year that's why they went 16 and 1 and they almost swept the entire playoffs right yeah uh if he's not able to do that they're going to be in for you know more uh you know choppy waters uh than last season and i think that's going to mean a tougher series against houston it's probably going to mean uh, a loss or two more in the earlier rounds than we might expect uh, i think they're going to go into the playoffs still as overwhelming favorites and i think vegas still views them that way uh so i'm not sure i agree with this idea that Oh, everyone's sleeping on the Warriors. I don't think that's happening. I think, if anything, it should be the opposite. Uh, we should be focusing in on Curry's impact when he's on the court, Curry's central role in helping them play to their full capabilities, and the questions around his health. 
Yeah, I I think we are we're sleeping on them to some extent. We're we're sleeping on just how much better they are than the rest of the league. But uh, should we talk about my my Twitter gaffe the other night during the Spurs game? Please. Every time you embarrass yourself on Twitter, <laughs> it's always less awkward if you bring it up on the podcast than if I bring it up because then everyone calls me a bully. And, yeah. You know, it's it's nice when you're accountable for yourself. <laughs> it, was, you know? it was really not great. So uh, rewind to last Thursday night. Uh, I was not really watching the, the Spurs-Warriors game. I was writing during that game. I was watching out of the corner of my eye. And... Um, I, f- I looked up like midway through the fourth quarter. The Spurs were up close to double digits, had full control of the game. And uh, and what what actually happened is that I was going to text you talking trash about Steph being better than Kevin Durant and Steph being more valuable than Kevin Durant. And oh so I typed out a text message to you saying, tough, tough night for all the people on KD is better than than Steph Island, and uh, I, I think I, I said you'll always have that Uber commercial. And I finished typing that message and said, you know what? I let me just tweet it just to, just to screw with Ben a little bit more. I almost added you in the tweet, but basically I was just procrastinating because I didn't want to finish this story and I was just screwing around. So I throw it out there just to just to stir it up a little bit, you know. Uh, nothing, nothing like some good trolling at, at like nearly one a.m. on a Thursday night. And I appreciate your tribute tweets, but can you please tell the audience what happened in the immediate aftermath of you hitting send? Yes. So as soon as I hit send on the Steph trolling, uh, Kevin Durant rolls off. I, I think he had already scored like six straight points. As I as I hit send on the tweet, and then he basically just took over the entire game, and I think he scored 15 out of the final 18 points to lead a comeback. The Spurs had no idea what to do with him, and he looked like the best player on the planet. And uh, basically, it was it was Kevin Durant dunking on me for about five straight minutes, and then. I spent the next 24 hours with various NBA fans in my mentions dunking on me all over again, which I completely deserved. I was being obnoxious and trolly. Uh, and so, yeah, sometimes sometimes that's just the way it goes. You know, you win some takes, you lose some takes. But it was pretty pretty incredible. It was a great sequence for, for the role player. Now, I love it when the universe can inform you of your mistakes so that I don't have to. Like, I didn't even need to reply to your tweet. I didn't even consider replying, you know, to be honest. I just let it marinate and, and watch you roast to death on uh, social media. <laughs> it was pretty funny. No, but look, they need Steph. I mean, we, we yeah. can harp on this over and over, but part of the issue is they don't really have a great backup point guard option, right? Like, we can sing Andre Iguodala's praises. We could talk about Kevin Durant's amazing unicorn-like ball handling. Uh, we could say Sean Livingston in certain situations can bring the ball up the court and get you into your offense. We can call Draymond Green one of the best playmaking front court players that there is in terms of his decision-making and passing skills. But you have to have a point guard. You have to have an elite point guard if you want to win a title, basically, at this point. Uh, or you have to have a guy who functions in that role 
uh, like a LeBron or a Giannis uh, to get you going and to get you at that elite level. And the drop off is staggering when he's not on the court. Uh, you know, it looks different. Yeah. Well, and- it's it's part of what makes the Warriors fascinating is that yeah, like Kevin Durant. However, you rank Steph and KD. They are number two and number three in the NBA in terms of value, in terms of effectiveness, whatever. And they are so clearly built around Steph, and Steph is so clearly like the engine for them. Uh, it's it's just kind of interesting. Um, like Kevin Durant, the last couple games has has continued to go off, and they're just not the same team with him running things uh, but it i will add this and this is not just to win back favor after after my twitter fuck up the other night uh it is really really fun to watch him to watch kd in kill mode for an entire game and i think that's one of the things that is a little bit frustrating about the warriors is we are taking two of the most entertaining basketball players on the planet and kind of muting their impact because they neither Steph nor KD gets to just like go nuts every night. And, uh, but for this stretch, it's, it's fun to watch KD sort of accept that burden and have to go score 35 a game to keep the Warriors at the top of the league. Okay. You're right about that, but I do want to point out one piece of hypocrisy. You can't make that same claim about how the Warriors are treating Steph and KD and kind of, you know, dialing them back mm-hmm. and then also be mad at Mike D'Antoni for running James Harden into the ground. Okay. Pick a side. All right. We either want to see superstars do whatever they could possibly do on offense every single night, or we're going to take the bigger picture approach of like going easy and, and making sure they're ready for the playoffs. All right. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> I honestly, I feel pretty comfortable having it both ways on that one. Even if it were just Steph's team, I would still say it's crazy to play him like 37 minutes a game or whatever Harden's at currently. I, I mean, the the issue with Harden is that these games are over by the time the, the, the Rockets hit the fourth quarter, in part because Harden and CP3 are so good. But like Steph has not played a lot of fourth quarters over the last three or four years. Yeah, certainly compared to a lot of other superstars. And, you know, that's that's why if you're an agent, you want your – uh, your, your mid-tier role player on the Warriors bench because you know he's he's going to get a lot of minutes in high-profile yeah. game action. Omri and, Caspi, uh, he's, be able to... he's eating well these days. Um, <laughs> let's move on, though. I have a game here, and it's kind of hacky and first-takey, but whatever. Let's just roll with it. Perfect. <laughs> it's March. Um, so among the contenders, let's play overrated, underrated. Just to go, we'll go through 10 or 11 teams here and see what you think. Uh, I think we've covered the Warriors. I think that they're currently underrated. You probably would say properly rated, but, um, Rockets as far as a, as a, as a contender, are they overrated or underrated at the moment? I think underrated. Again, I don't. Who are we basing this off of? Who's doing the rating? The entire world or the NBA yeah, intelligentsia? Yeah, a, a little or bit of you both. And me? A little bit of casual fans. A little bit of like hardcore hoop heads that spend all day on Twitter. Whatever you want to, whatever direction you want to go with it. Boy, this is a dumb game. Okay, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I still think the Rockets are are underrated because I think the the knee jerk reaction to just be completely skeptical of what they could do at the playoffs is so strong that I don't think until they're running teams off the court in the playoffs, like until they're you know laying the smack down like in a, a second round playoff series against one of these West teams that's sort of like good but not great. Uh-huh. I, I think people are going to be 
just totally skeptical. And if they do get their worst case scenario, which would be like a one eight series against San Antonio with Kawhi back, um, I think you would have a lot of people doing the I'm picking the Spurs, like, you know, regardless <laughs> of uh, regardless of how well like Houston plays going into that series or how well Kawhi looks once he's back on the court or anything else, I think there'd be a, a huge rush to just jump on that Spurs bandwagon solely because of like anti rocket sentiment. So for that reason I still think they're underrated. Basically, you think that they're underrated because of me, because I will be that guy in a, in a Rocket Spurs first round matchup. I will be right there warning everybody and probably picking the Spurs. You're nothing if not a man of the people, though. You know, I mean, the, the team, the team sharp legions are out there. And I think you speak for a lot of people uh, when it comes to Houston and, and sort of being like, look, we don't want to give you anything. Right. Yeah. Earn it. Yeah, all right. So uh, what I would say on Houston is that they are properly rated as a great regular season team. I think they're a little bit overrated as far as the challenge that they that they pose to the Warriors. Um and I I know I this is kind of a, a a bad take for me, but I really do think that the Spurs with Kawhi could push them and um I would love, 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 love to see that series. And I also think that the Spurs are going to drop enough games over the next couple weeks to make the seventh seed a realistic possibility for San Antonio. So we'll see what happens. As far as a, like a, a Rockets-Warriors series, I don't see it being very close. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with overrated for Houston. Um, okay, let's, let's talk about this. Let's dig in. Let's say San Antonio beats Houston in like six games in the first round, right? Uh-huh. That makes Houston the biggest chokers of recent modern NBA history. Like if they're a 1-8 and they lose in that series, I mean, that's like a historical disaster, right? Who who has to pay for it? Do, they can't bring everybody back, can they? Can you bring D'Antoni, really, Chris Paul, it's a really good question, and man. James Harden back if that happens? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, well, we've talked about how CP3 is not signed long-term and probably has sort of a wink-wink deal with Daryl Morey. But maybe that falls apart if they if Houston loses in like six games to San Antonio. Uh, I think you bring it back, though. I think they've been so good that you just like – when you're that close, you you don't really hit reset until you absolutely have to. Uh, so if I were Daryl Morey, and if I were like, I mean they're they're changing ownership too. Like who knows what the deal is, but I would I would bring it back even if Greg Popovich and Kawhi like ruin their whole <laughs> ruin their whole season, which would be amazing. <laughs> It would be amazing. It would be insane. I mean, you know how much like Raptors fans feel like they don't get any respect? Imagine if the, the Rockets lose in the first round to the Spurs, and then they come back next year. They could win 77 regular season games, and it would be 10 times the level of disrespect from the media than what the Raptors <laughs> have been facing over these last couple of years. It wouldn't make it go 77-5, and five, and people would be like, yeah, whatever. We know you're going to choke you know, come May or whatever. I mean, it would be really, really hard to stomach that for all involved parties, especially because they've been doing kind of a lot of talking, right? Yeah. I mean, they've, they've been carrying themselves like a team that is a top two team in the league and they're going to have to stand up and do it. Yeah. Well, we just got, we also got a question from Bobby who said, what do you guys think Toronto's best move is after this postseason if they don't make a solid run in the playoffs? Uh, and that was like after going back and forth with one of his best friends arguing about this and whether they would have to blow it up. Like, let's say Toronto, who is next on the list for overrated, underrated. 
let's say they lost in the first round, which is not inconceivable to me. What would you do in that spot? Well, first of all, this is going to sound weird. I think we almost owe the Raptors more respect than to even address this question. I mean, these guys are clearly the most solid, steadiest, complete team in the Eastern Conference right now. They're playing very well. They're doing it offensively and defensively. Okay, so listen. Uh, I so think that you're that right. Standpoint- I think that you're right that they are st- uh, solid and steady and elite. Three things that the Wizards very much have not been. However, if it if like if the Wizards slide to 7 or 8 or I guess they'd have to be 8 to play Toronto. I mean, that's not a it's it's not a an easy Raptors win, right? I hear what you're saying, but it's just disrespectful framing for what's <laughs> happening in Toronto right now. Like they're probably going to have the coach of the year. DeRozan's having easily the best season of his career all around. Uh there's so many positive stories, and you want to frame this as what's Toronto going to do if they flame out again? Not if I me. Was this fit, is I, Bobby in Texas who wants to ask that, and I think but Andrew, it's a valid here's question. The, but Andrew, here's the thing about podcasts. Okay, it's an audio medium, so when you're reading the question, we can hear the glee in your voice, okay? <laughs> look. We know you're excited about this prospect. Now, look, to answer his question, though, in all seriousness, I would trade Kyle Lowry. I would get out of that contract, and I don't know if that counts as blowing it up, but I that would be my number one move. Um, I would try to go money ball at the point guard spot if possible because they've got you know a lot of quality point guards there, guys who've been putting up. Delon Wright, Van Vliet, some good options. I would just I would just try to trade Kyle Lowry to the Knicks. You know uh, they're going to be there waiting as a possible Lowry destination probably until twenty forty, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then I would just go forward and uh, you know count the paychecks. I mean, look, these guys have got to be making money hand over fist with the way they've been playing during the regular season, right? Yeah. I mean, they're super popular. The fans are turning out. They're excited about it. Uh, that is a team that I would not just completely scrap uh, if they did somehow stumble in the first round and kind of fulfill their worst case scenario. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I don't want to be painted as a Raptors skeptic because on the last podcast, I, I came out and said, I'm, I'm very close to picking the Raptors to make the finals. And I loved, loved watching that Raptors Rockets fourth quarter uh, on Friday night. And so I also think that Toronto, whoever's in charge out there, they need to wear the black and gold uniforms as much as possible this postseason because I feel like the the entire team becomes much easier to take seriously in those uniforms. Those are awesome. Um, but Wait, the OVO ones, I didn't realize you were such a joke. I'm not. I'm good. really not. I'm really not. And in fact, that was one of the most eye-opening uh revelations of all-star weekend in toronto is just how hard toronto reps for drake because he's always been something of a punchline in america but like you go up there people are unironically rocking drake jordan gear like everywhere you look um but uh but hey shout out to them shout out to drake courtside taunting trevor ariza on friday night it was great um and let's move on to Celtics, overrated, underrated. What do you think? I mean, this is a tricky one just because of the injuries today. I mean, I know. It, ch- I it know, almost but... changes my answer. I would have said underrated because I think that they were overrated for the first two Never. months and then kind of like Never. <laughs> fell off the radar and are still really solid and in, in really good shape. Uh, but I think that like you take – Daniel Tice, who whose name I've mispronounced in the past on this podcast, but you take him out of the mix, you take Marcus Smart out of the mix, and then Kyrie's got some like mysterious knee stuff going on. 
I don't know. I don't feel great about where they are. I think it's completely impossible to live in a world flat or round where the Celtics are underrated. It's just not possible. <laughs> so if if anything, they were edging towards properly rated. I think at this point, whatever people think of them, even during this backlash to the injuries, I think they're probably still overrated as championship contenders this season. Um, to me, they look like a team that has a ceiling of the Eastern Conference Finals uh, and the injuries, you know, th- that could cut into that too. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm I'm calling the Pacers underrated in part because I think we and I, really every basketball fan is looking at that Pacers team and being like, well, that's the easiest out in the East. And so I don't I don't know if they're actually going to win a playoff series, but they're not going to go down as easily as everyone expects. Yeah, I'm nervous because Oladipo was terrible in last year's playoffs. You know, obviously, totally different situation and everything else. Like, it's not the Westbrook, you know, martyr ball right. uh, system. But I don't know. Uh, to me, I think they're kind of properly rated from the skepticism standpoint. Who do you see them being able to beat in, in terms of their possible first-round playoff matchups? I mean, you've already you've already said the Wizards would beat them in a postseason series, and, and you you smirked about it, you chuckled about it, you know, you got all con- <laughs> you got all condescending about it, and I mean, you guys aren't special. Well, in listen, any way. keep in mind that I'm a little bit of an unreliable narrator when it be- when it comes to the Wizards because I. I will simultaneously trash the state of my favorite team. And then also like once, once it's time to talk like playoff matchups, I really don't fear anybody in the East. Like if it was wizards Cavs, I would feel decently confident, uh, which is insane. Uh, but I, so I wizards Pacers, I think that they would be okay. Um, the, the wizards would, Pacers Sixers or Pacers Bucks I think I might like the Pacers in that series why uh just because they are full of veterans who don't do stupid shit basically and you can't really say that about the the Sixers or the Bucks I mean I think the Bucks have been kind of a mess the past month or so and don't really know how to play at this point and uh and the Sixers will have these stretches where they look incredible and then everything dies and they they just forget how to play basketball for a quarter. And so I think that some of that is going to hurt them in, in their playoff series, whoever they match up with this year. And that's going to be kind of part of their growth process. Yeah, some I, I hear you on the Buck side of it. One thing I'd point out with the Pacers is if they somehow hang on to this three seed. I think the expectations and the hype that kind of go with yeah. that, to me, that just has all the makings of a, like someone's heart is going to get broken. Yeah. Like an uh, uncomfortable first round playoff series. Yeah. They remember also with their winning total, they've outperformed their point differential by a good amount. So like a team like Philly actually has a better point differential right now than the Pacers do. And the Pacers and wizards are very, very close in point differential. And that's with the wizards, not having John wall for a really good chunk of the season. Right. So, you know, point differential would suggest like, even if Indiana was like a three, six in one of those matchups that that'd be a toss up series, or it would be much closer than a, a normal three, six series. And Personally, I think I'd take Washington or Philly to beat Indiana if that's how it shakes out. So I, that's why I'm saying kind of properly rated uh, at this point. Uh, you know, yeah. I know you want to you want to pander to our friends in in the flyover states and say, oh yeah, no one's <laughs> giving your team respect. But it's it's harder to make a case for them as a 
team that is going to complete a first-round series victory when so many of their guys just have very limited postseason records and they don't have, you know, like that true A-list star power that usually takes over, uh, you know, come playoff time. Okay, um, let's go slightly bigger picture. Western Conference, uh, overrated or underrated right now? Like the whole West? Yeah. It's always underrated, man. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> is and, it and the though? Main reason why it, is it? Because yes, I wrote it about this last week, and really, I look up and down that conference, and I just don't see a whole lot to get excited about this spring. Like I, that, the playoff bracket is full of teams who are nowhere near Houston and Golden State, and I just, and not only that, they're all, all of them are in the midst of all-in bets that are not really working. And I just think that the West is not nearly as exciting as we're used to it being. Well, we could run off the list of superstars who have missed significant time that have kind of cratered the Western Conference's you know usual dominance. Uh-huh. And yet, if the the Wizards played a balanced schedule and they had to face the teams in the Western Conference, they're a lottery team. Look, I mean, you could say you that for half the teams. You in can't the Eastern always Conference. bring the discussion back to the Wizards to undercut me because. It's no, fair. I mean, the, the the Wizards would be a mess if they had to play a Western Conference schedule. Well, the Wizards right now are representative of the East middle playoff tier, right? Yeah. Like they're right smack in that five seed, and there's a whole bunch of other teams uh, with similar narratives all in that same range. But if you balance the schedule, all those teams would be lottery teams, and their whole stories or how we talk about them or how bright their futures are or everything else would be uh, a lot more pessimistic, whereas in the West, the standard is just higher. And, and that's kind of what I would say in response to some of the arguments you just made. Like, we look at Denver, if they mi- miss the playoffs this year, as like abject failures, right? Yeah. Like, oh, this they spent all this money on Paul Millsap. Where are they going? They, you know, Moutier is a bust, and their young guys just weren't ready yet, and so on and so forth. But if they're making the playoffs comfortably in the Eastern Conference with the same team because they're playing a softer schedule, the whole story is about optimism of how great the Nuggets are and you know their offense is unbelievable. And so to me, uh, the, the two conferences are just operating with two completely different standards. And so from that standpoint, I'm always going to favor teams in the Western Conference who have a tougher go, who are held to that higher standard because, uh, you know, average looks a lot better in the East than it does in the West. And it's a lot harder to be great in the West than it is the East. Okay. That's a, that's a fair answer. Um, I think from an entertainment standpoint, the West won't be nearly as fun as the East this spring. And it just in terms of the playoff field in part, because in the West we're grading everyone on basically an impossible curve with the Warriors and now the Rockets out there. And the East, it's just sort of like a Royal Rumble of imperfect teams. Uh, like, like it's college football, like we said four months ago. Uh, it's it's going to be a mess, and I can't wait to see how it plays out. It could go in 10 well, different directions. But let me ask you this. If we just plopped Houston and Golden State into the East, would you be still be as excited about this college football idea, or would you just say, hey, all these teams are terrible. They have no these shot teams are screwed. Golden State. Yes, it, it might just be Golden State's fault that the rest of the West looks as depressing as it does. That's entirely possible. I also think that you could make an argument that the Western Conference teams have started behaving a little bit more like some of the the bad East teams in the last 10 years where there's been a lot of short-term thinking in the West and people kind of making some desperate moves in part to like convince superstars that they have a shot against Golden State. And so when you look at like Minnesota and 
OKC, I, part of the reasons these seasons have been harder to enjoy is because not only are they not really excelling now, but you can't watch them without thinking about how screwed they are over the next three or four years because of some of the bets they've made. Yeah, I agree. And, and compounding some of that is the injury issues. Yeah. You know? I mean, Minnesota, Minnesota is with so Jimmy Butler harder. is a lot more fun than Minnesota without Jimmy Butler. That's fair. Yeah. And, and Oklahoma's ceiling when they were fully healthy was much better than it is now. And San Antonio, I mean, you know, look, I, I ride for them till the end, right? It's hard to ride for these guys. Like, their, their clutch offense without Kawhi is basically like one guy who can't take the ball from Dude. the three-point line to the basket, taking three dribbles, stopping, passing out to another guy who takes three dribbles into the paint, stops, passes out to another guy who does the exact same thing for about 20 seconds of the shot clock. Then they pass to LaMarcus for a bailout turnaround tough, too, that – you know, he makes sometimes and misses a lot of the other times. I mean, it, this is not the typical Spurs team, you know, clearly. And that has put a huge damper on this season because when you have that, that wide of a gap between the top two and everybody else, you're right. It's easier to focus on the negatives of all these other sort of wannabe teams rather than what they could have been had things broken better. Yeah, and uh, you're right to mention the injuries because OKC with Roberson was starting to look pretty scary uh right i guess he went down in like mid-january but he he's they looked awesome for about three weeks there um anyways moving on to one more question in the west roman says we all know that the lakers want two stars this summer but is julius randall doing enough to make the case that he shouldn't be sacrificed for lebron and paul george Considering Julius's age, obvious improvement, and ability to defend when switched on to guards, there's no way the Lakers should let him walk for nothing this offseason. You watched him in Los Angeles last night. What's your take? Well, first of all, that was probably like the best game of his life, maybe, or one of his highest scoring games uh, of his career, if not his career high. Mm-hmm. He just completely pulverized Cleveland's front line, which is in tatters right yeah. now. I mean... I, I like the Larry Nance Jr. edition as much as anybody, but he can't be your best defensive big if you're going to be a contender. That's a good it's just point. not possible. And that, that's an issue for them. But Julius Randle used to be one of the players in the NBA who bothered me the most to watch play. I know. He was definitely uh, a punching bag of this podcast as recently as last season, just because he was like the one sort of corner of the Lakers nucleus that like clearly didn't make sense and he sort of transformed his game a little bit or or not really I would say refined his game like he is still bullying people to the rim it's just a lot more effective than it was last year at this time absolutely he used to drive me crazy because of his decision making uh, because of his willingness to throw up you know, contested uh, shots that he wasn't finishing very well around the basket because of his predictability in terms of always going left. Uh, there was just things that really bugged me about him, but he's ironed a lot of that stuff out. I think Jay Roman here is going too far, though, Andrew. He's saying there's no way the Lakers should let him walk for nothing in the offseason. If you're taking LeBron, Paul George, and then you're able to trade some other pieces for a third star, aren't you willing to part with Julius Randle in that scenario if you're a Lakers fan yeah I mean I I think it's pretty clear that that's what they're gonna end up doing in part because of the, the way things will shake out timing wise during free agency it's not likely that anything is gonna be resolved with LeBron and Paul George early and uh and Julius Randle is gonna have other teams throwing offers at him and he's probably gonna he's probably gonna end up signing an offer sheet in that first week 
and the Lakers are not going to be in a position to like tie up that cap space. Um, and I, I also think you could, you could go even bigger picture and, and just look at the way Randall has been treated in LA the past year. And I, I wouldn't blame him necessarily if he looked around and said, you know what, they haven't really wanted me for most of the time I've been here. So let me look around and, and sign somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. And I think defensively, like Jay Roman's right to mention the versatility and the ability to track on the perimeter. I still think he's not the world's you know best interior defensive player either. Uh, and so I think you know that holds him back a little bit in terms of like the must keep aspect. Like I still don't think he's that Draymond guy that you know, people have been. Hoping <laughs> I really wanted and, him, and to him to be Draymond. I still love his game. I mean, offensively. I can't think of anyone in the league who would be more exhausting to guard than Julius Randle because he's just like constantly, he could get called for a charge on like 75% of his possessions on offense, but he's just constantly like bullying into people's bodies and he's made it work for him. Yeah, for sure. And again, his offense was frustrated because sometimes earlier in his career, he would go places without a plan yeah. or he would settle for the mid-range shots that he didn't shoot very well. And you're right to say refined is exactly the right word. I mean, he, he's figured out what he does well when he has matchup advantages. He attacks them relentlessly. He's got a good motor. Uh, I think Luke has actually done quite a bit of, of work with uh, with Randall. Uh, to emphasize consistency of effort, you know, to basically hold him accountable when he's not bringing it full tilt. Uh, I guess my one concern would be, okay, this is a contract year and everybody knows it. So, you know, it does he come with the same mentality next year once he's paid? I think that's an open question. I still wish he could shoot three pointers. That would be really helpful for him as an overall offensive player. Yeah. Uh, but the stri- the strides are there, and we need to give him credit for that. Yeah. You know what he used to be king of the first couple years of his career is like that spin move was really his only his only move and so he would just spin move to nowhere like half the time and uh i as someone who used to do that in video games i was a big fan of watching it play out in live nba games but he's he's toned it down uh and made it made it more successful and more effective this year which is cool um and he's also dominating for my fantasy team so i'm a little bit biased but Moving on, this is a, a bigger picture awards question here. Waz says, with Anthony Davis, Durant, and Giannis, does LeBron deserve a first-team All-NBA selection? And no, we're not slotting Giannis in as a guard. What do you think? Well, it's tricky because I think Davis is going to be able to get some center votes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the way that the voting breaks down. So if, if you're taking AD, KD, and LeBron as your first team All-NBA, don't you think that's where most people would go? Wow, you're bumping our guy, man. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, I'm not necessarily saying that's how I would vote because I haven't sat down to do it, but I'm trying to forecast how I think the first team ballots are going to come out. And I think LeBron is still in that category for most voters where he's just an automatic selection. People are just going to write him in, don't you think? Yeah, and I, I almost think he should be. Um, because I think you can you could have some some good discussions about how you penalize him for basically coasting for six weeks of the year and what effect he had on on the Cavs roster this year and the Cavs over the summer and how you should sort of like price that into the way we're the way we did like gauge his value um, at the same time he's LeBron and he's like fucking incredible and better than 
probably everyone in the league except for maybe Durant. So, uh, like, I think he's got to be he – sh- he should be there by default. Yeah, and I think he will be. And I think the same goes for KD at this point, especially because he got injured last year, and I think that changed where he ranked. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to probably be some makeup from certain people on that one. And then I think Anthony Davis, I mean, versus the other center uh, candidates, uh, to me, he's the first name that pops up, even though he kind of splits time between the four and five. I mean, I, I kind of feel like that's going to be the compromise people make because in past years, guys like DeAndre Jordan have kind of gotten that slot. And to me, you know, it kind of makes a mockery of the whole process, right? I mean, yeah. No one would consider him one of the top five players in the league. So it, that center designation has always kind of bugged me. I, I think they should just go to the top five overall guys. And I think there would be even less of a question of LeBron getting onto that uh, roster if that's the way they did so, it. So let's say this then. If it were the top five overall guys, would it be Anthony Davis, Durant, LeBron, Giannis, and Harden? Well, isn't that like the MVP award? Uh, I mean, isn't, you know? I mean, yeah, I guess so. I, I just like beyond. I mean, with Ste- yeah, with Steph's injuries, I, I don't think he's going to be on there. Uh, I think... You know, people in Toronto would be screaming for DeRozan, and I, and I would not do that. Uh, so I think that probably would be my top five in, in some order. Yeah. Those five you listed. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see. Uh, Giannis will have another decade to make the first team All-NBA, so uh, I'm not too worried about it. Although it is, it's kind of a logjam at those two forward positions, and it's it's an issue because that's where the best players in the league are year after year. Um and I, well, I'd say I'd say this too about Waz's question. These are the questions that should be asked because this is how guys like Kobe and Dwayne Wade and other guys have kind of hung around on all NBA teams maybe a year or two longer mm-hmm. as they got later into their career than they deserved because nobody asked those questions and just wrote those guys in every single time. And given how many young players have taken big leaps forward this season, it's a great question to ask. Yeah, um, it's only going to become more relevant because Giannis is not going away. And, and neither is LeBron, somehow. Um, but anyways, next question is from Thaddeus. He says, listening to the Starters Drop podcast, one question they posed was regarding which team from back in the day you'd want to put in the league right now for a season. Two of the four hosts picked Shaq teams, one going with the Magic version and one going with the Lakers version. That brings me to my question for you guys. Which version of Shaq do you think would wreak more havoc if he played today? The trimmer, more mobile Orlando version or the monstrous MVP version that was on the Lakers? What do you think? I mean, there's no wrong answer to this question. I can tell you the one who I would want to see would be the Orlando version because Really? Okay. I think he he would get more favorable treatment by the officials cuz remember, that was like early to mid 90s when it was still like brawl ball in the NBA, you know? Yeah. So every time he's bringing down a basket or, or shattering a backboard, remember he's also being just absolutely hacked by like the Davis brothers and the Oakleys of the world. And at that time, he was not as powerful or as physically imposing as he was later in his career. So if you give him the modern rules, you expect all these undersized fives to try to guard that version of Shaq. And then you give him, you know, a higher allotment of calls. I think it would be just insane. Plus there's a few highlights over his career of Shaq just taking off in the open court, dribbling behind his back and dribbling. And those almost kind of seem like bloopers like, Oh, that's so crazy that Shaq would do that. 
if Shaq arrived on a college campus with those skills now, he would be encouraged to just take the defensive rebound and go constantly, which would be unbelievable. He would almost, you know, be probably cousins like in a way. He would uh, be. That's a that's a great comparison. Le- like a better version of cousins, uh, a more unstoppable version of cousins. And then I also just think, I mean, like he would cause so many matchup issues. He would give you sort of the best of all the modern bigs, whether it's Embiid or Cousins or Davis, all in one package that it would, you know, potentially tilt the strategy the other direction. You'd have to have Shaq stoppers. You'd have to uh, play the hack-a-shack game even more than they did in the past. I mean, it would, there would be like rule changes around what Shaq would be capable of doing in this modern version. Yeah. So I'd love it. Yeah. You talk about Shaq stoppers. That's one of the things I think back to is like, I think one of the reasons OKC kept Kendrick Perkins uh, years ago and refused to amnesty him was to, was to play defense against Shaq. And that's one of the reasons they, they were, pushing up against the cap and and eventually the luxury tax and decided to trade Harden. And uh, I could have the facts wrong. It's been like six or seven years, but it like Shaq definitely influenced roster decisions around the league. And it is, that's one of the more interesting things to think about it, it plopping him down. I, I would choose the monstrous MVP version on the Lakers though. I think throwing like, 350 pound shack into today's game would be amazing just for the spectacle of it because the rest of the league at most of the centers look more like anthony davis um and watching all of those guys suddenly have to deal with the most unstoppable player probably i've ever seen in my life would be pretty incredible yeah, my concern with that version would be it would be so sad to have to get into the conversation of like, oh, can you sh- keep Shaq on the court because he can't track out to like defend the three point line? Oh yeah, and that's true. Well, that it's, would be it's funny because so aggravating and horrible. When you were talking about Shaq on a college campus today, I th- like it would be just as aggravating to watch Shaq like fumble his way through shooting threes just because he feels like that's what <laughs> like big men are supposed to do. So I don't know. Maybe Shaq came around, came along in the perfect era uh, because I think I still feel that way watching DeAndre Ayton shoot threes. Even like it's great that you can do this, but like when you're built that way, just go inside and like dunk all over people and grab twenty boards a game, which he's doing. So um, it's working out well for him. Uh, but next question is another hypothetical. John says if you could fuse any two teams in the NBA outside of the clear front runners, Houston, Cleveland, Golden State, etc., which teams would you fuse to make the ultimate team for present and future dominance? I was listening to your pod about how the Sixers will be scary in a couple years and I was thinking how crazy it would be to see them and the Wizards fuse together. Sadoransky and Fultz, Beal, Porter, Simmons and Bede and Wall as a sixth man would be a perfect fit and would dominate the NBA for years to come. Um, and so first of all, it's a good question. Second of all, this more than anything else that happened this year speaks volumes about how far Wall's stock has fallen somehow. And I think at this point we have to call him underrated now that he is coming off the bench so that Sadoransky and Markel Fultz can start for this hypothetical roster. But beyond that, uh, that the the Wizards and Sixers would fuse together to make a pretty awesome team. Beal would pair perfectly with Ben Simmons. What do you think, though? 
Well, I actually think taking the Blazers roster and the Sixers roster would be even better because yes. Portland's backcourt guys probably fit with that collection of, of players. You know, you've you floated out the Lillard to Philly idea previously before Portland became uh, unbeatable here over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it wasn't that long ago you threw that idea right. out. But I think the same same thing goes with McCollum too. Like you could just send Fultz on his way to whatever next his next career is going to be if you have CJ McCollum, right? Uh yeah, absolutely. I mean, McCollum that it, it would be so much fun to watch him on a team where he wasn't necessarily like counted on to score twenty five points a game and was more of like a bonus or, or icing on the cake because I think that's his perfect role. I mean, if you had Lillard, McCollum, Simmons. Uh, Covington and Embiid as your starting five with like Redick off the bench, uh, Aminu off the bench is like another defensive guy. If you want to go to like super versatile lineups, that's a tough team. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good team. I mean, matchup issues at every spot, plenty of pick and roll combination possibilities, multiple isolation scores. You know, you'd have veteran guidance for Markel Fultz. Maybe McCollum could help, you know, get his head right. I mean, that would be a really sick squad. I mean, my mind obviously went to how could we fix the Bucks? you know, because like their defensive interior issues have been driving me crazy recently. Mm -hmm. So a couple of teams I considered in terms of merging them with would either be like the Pelicans or the Jazz. Like basically just if you gave them Rudy Gobert or Anthony Davis, I think the Bucks would be so much closer to the team that I want them to yeah. be. And you throw in another, you know, shooter here and there, maybe a little uh, Joe Ingles, you know, <laughs> you know uh, change of pace, fun, uh, humor, quotient I think would make the Bucks much closer to the team that I've kind of hoped they would be here over the last six months than the team they've sort of ended up becoming yeah uh it's funny because I feel that way about the Jazz or I guess I don't know I don't know which team would get the others roster but I would I would do that with the Jazz and the Blazers because I think if you fuse those teams together like Utah has a bunch of the role players that Portland has been searching for and then Lillard and McCollum and Gobert as your big three with Donovan Mitchell coming off the bench. Donovan Mitchell, by the way, just an insane fourth quarter against the Pelicans on Sunday in a game that I think they probably should have lost until Mitchell just went nuts. Uh, and I think he had like 25 points in the second half. But, uh, but that would be the team that I would create just because I've liked the Jazz and I've liked the Blazers and they're both just like a couple pieces short. Um, and then you're right that Anthony Davis is, is probably the correct answer to this question. You could pair D Davis and the Pelicans with like any other team and create a contender but with DC with, uh, with Boston, like it put him in a better situation and it gets impossible pretty quickly. Can I tell you the power of Donovan Mitchell? He's actually single-handedly changing one of my biggest Twitter pet peeves. Uh -huh. So for years, it has always bugged me when people will just tweet a player's name or a player's name with exclamation <laughs> points or like, so, you know, a statement that's like, a good that's just old so guy obvious. pet peeve. Oh, it drives me crazy. Like LeBron James exclamation point or LeBron James is good at basketball. That's another classic, yeah. you know, like the understated, <laughs> ironic, yep. super obvious statement has driven me crazy for at least five uh -huh. years. It is my number one pet peeve on Twitter. But what Donovan Mitchell is doing to jazz fans and media members consistently where they're just basically just like Donovan Mitchell is a superstar. Donovan Mitchell is going to be a superstar. I mean, that has just been repeated ad nauseum here over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. 
his style of play is so excited that he's actually got me on the board with with it being okay because he's just stupefying people. He's like <laughs> rendering people, uh, you know, unable to like complete, uh, you know, complete complicated thoughts while they're watching him play. And so I think that's the biggest testament to his rookie season and to his versatility in this conversation. Because I mean, imagine the Bucks Jazz combo if you had, you know, Bledsoe, Mitchell, Middleton. Uh, Giannis, Gobert, plus off the bench, Jabari. Yeah, that's, that's a, a, that's that's a, a squad, really man. solid squad. No question about it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm right there with you on Donovan Mitchell. And it's funny because I was watching that Pelicans jazz game and Anthony Davis had like nine blocks midway through the third quarter. <laughs> and I was really ready to come in on the podcast this week and, and start flying the Anthony Davis for MVP flag and mercifully for both listeners and for you, uh, Donovan Mitchell took over and won that game and sort of like tempered my enthusiasm a little bit. But he he was just unbelievable. And it's it says a lot when you're talking about Anthony Davis, who's one of the five or six best players in the league, going toe-to-toe and losing with Donovan Mitchell. No doubt. I mean, and it's not one-on-one I know. necessarily. I know that's that a, it's a simplistic like, way to look at it, but like... Donovan Mitchell took over the game, which I didn't think he was necessarily capable of, particularly on the road. No, totally. And in a game that New Orleans really, really wants to win and is like desperately trying to sell tickets for like every avenue possible to kind of like build up their home court advantage. I mean, the guy is special. There's a reason why he's stupefying, you know, a really smart local media there in Salt Lake City. It's not like these guys are just slack jawed idiots. They're watching a great player play great basketball. Yeah. Um, all right. Couple more questions here. Atticus says, I feel like Tibbs has really damaged the the Wolves' future. We all used to say, wow, Philly and Minnesota are going to be something special in a couple years. No one says that anymore about the Wolves. Granted, Wiggins continues to cause everyone to shrug, but we are all just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop on Tibbs screwing up the team more than he already has, right? Am I off on this? Can you two really disagree with me after this Rose signing? I get that it's only a one-year deal, but seriously, come on. And this is one of several complaints we've gotten about the Rose signing. I don't really have a strong stance on on the Rose deal, in part because it's such a low risk for Minnesota. Um, but I do think that Tyus Jones helps them more than Derrick Rose. And it's a, it's a point that I made the second uh, Derrick Rose was available. It's like, look, Tyus Jones is better than Derrick Rose right now. And so I'm sure... Like it's it's perfectly reasonable for Wolves fans to be driven insane by this, um, but it's a the bigger picture point is also a good one. It does seem like some of the Wolves hype for the future, dreams for the future, some of that has been dampened a little bit. Yeah, I mean Derrick Rose is terrible right now. Period. Yeah, that's, we knew that. As simple that's, as that's it not gets. really news. And, I mean, and that's the thing. It was so obvious, even when Phil Jackson traded for him, like that moment was the time to just write off any help that Derrick Rose might be, you know, and forget his popcorn stats that he put up in New York. I mean, the guy has been not helpful for years and years. And so his addition, I think, is not something to, you know, freak out too much over because I think Tibbs is so gung-ho about winning games right now that if he has to choose between running other players into the ground or like doing a solid to his former protege, Derrick Rose, by giving him extra minutes to kind of try to help him prolong his career, he's obviously going to choose trying to win games at all costs. And I think if that's your mentality, you're not going to be allowing Derrick Rose very much leash at all. I think Atticus's observation is actually dead on because I've seen our tone uh, change too. And 
Part of it is because you make a trade for a veteran in Jimmy Butler. That that becomes your team's new identity, right? So you're on his timeline now rather than on Carl Anthony Towns' timeline. And I think, you know, if we're talking overrated, underrated, like long-term futures, I would say we're probably still underrating Minnesota here a little bit just because Towns is that special. He's been that good at, at this young of an age. But it's tricky because the Butler trade worked great until it didn't. I mean, once he gets injured, that throws the whole plan into question, and it makes you wonder what's he going to be like in two years. Is he going to fall off a cliff? Uh, Is he going to be able to hold up uh, over the course of, say, next season if Thibodeau rides him so heavily? And it also exposes all the other mistakes that Thibodeau's made at various points in assembling this roster. So I agree that some of the shine has come off of Minnesota, but I would say keep hope alive based solely on Carl Towns's uh, upside and his age. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, almost entirely there. I mean, I, I I agree with the the Jimmy point. That's part of the part of the reason that I'm not quite as excited about the future, just because I don't think that Jimmy Butler is going to age particularly well, and I also think that as he declines, the Wolves are going to have to decide what to pay him and and how and whether to max him out. And I think that they'll probably see that question and answer yes as quickly as possible. And I don't know how well that's going to end for them. Um, And then I think the biggest factor, though, when we talk about assessing hype for the next five or six years is Wiggins is less exciting than I think even some of the skeptics would have expected. And uh, and when you're comparing that to Philly and, and Bede and Simmons, like, it's it's harder to get as excited about about Towns and Wiggins. Uh, although you're right that Towns may be the best player on either team in five years, particularly when you start factoring in health. So it's too, too yeah, early it, to give up on Minnesota at all. But it, it we've all just had this, it's been a, more of a sobering year, I guess, as the Wolves start to get real. Yeah, it's been a sobering month, I'd say, because I, I thought things were going really swimmingly for them, you know, prior to the injury. And then that that shows everything, kind of uh, reveals the flaws. One thing on Wiggins, and I would say I've been, you know, pretty pro Wiggins, I'd say, over the course of his prep school career through to his college career, pro career, et cetera. But I did catch myself recently thinking about, you know, Wiggins trade scenarios. And instead of starting with the teams, I thought he could help the most my mind reflexively went to who are the dumbest gms to take this contract that's a bad sign you know in terms of where andrew wiggins is at when you're thinking like how could you unload this money and i know some people defend it i mean you know small market team hard to get stars he's a centerpiece number one overall player you have to pay him i get all that but i also think there's a very real scenario where minnesota's best case in two years doesn't have him on the roster. Well, not only that, I think that one of the reasons they paid him is because they didn't want to have it hanging over this season, and they wanted to just have all the guys there and everybody in place to sort of make this playoff push, which I I sort of understand, but that's also like not the reason to to give someone one hundred fifty million dollars. And uh, and like the second he signed that deal, there were NBA people I talked to who were like. I don't know if that money would have been there had he had he circled back and and had to sign this summer and um, so that's kind of a bummer but um, but yeah Towns was unbelievable against Draymond Green in the fourth quarter on Sunday so there's plenty to to love regardless but moving on here uh, I included a note from LeBron James on uh, on Sunday he said LeBron said I'm 33. He's 13 years old. If he has a chance to play in the NBA and it seems like he can make it, you've got to. 
which means you've got to stick around, which me and he's talking about LeBron James Jr. And our theory, our dream for LeBron is alive and well. Just a, a little update there. LeBron James Jr. is killing it on the mixtape circuit, man. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to become one of the most Googled athletes. Here's a prediction. Within three years, he is going to be up there on the list of the most Googled, most viewed, most Instagrammed athletes. Uh, there's no Which, doubt. I mean, by the way, guys like- that's a little bit of a gifted curse because most of the people who blow up at like 15 on the mixtape circuit don't end up really panning out in the NBA. It's kind of like the Zion Williamson Thon maker zone. But I guess LeBron, it's a little tricky because he's uh, or, or excuse me, LeBron Jr. It's a little tricky because he's going to be famous no matter what. Yeah, well, something tells me that LeBron James Jr. is going to have a better career than Rodney Purvis, okay? I mean, I... I I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Okay, so Rose says, how could you forget DeMarcus Cousins calling George Carl a snake in the grass on your your list of best NBA Twitter moments? DeMarcus's emoji usage was so artful, so simple, and so to the point. And uh, it's a great point. We... Forgot two things on the on the NBA Twitter best of list. Number one was we forgot lockout Twitter, which is sort of where NBA Twitter was birthed. Um, listener Alan Ryan posted that or pointed that out uh, last week. And then Boogie's snake in the grass sequence was phenomenal. It led to three days of, of amazing Twitter because it also spawned Lakers rumors. That was the week of the draft. It was just awesome. Yeah, one thing I'd say is I still have scars from lockout Twitter, though, because I, at that time I was kind of in charge of updating the news in terms of how the negotiations were developing. And the two sides during that lockout would meet and accomplish nothing just over and over <laughs> and over again. So I was basically chained to my computer for like three months with a pre-written post that said the NBA and the National Basketball Players Association met today. Uh, in whatever city, at whatever hotel, and did not reach a deal. And I had to just update that like 15 or 20 times over the course of those months. And so I don't look back fondly on that time period. That was really, to me, it was sort of like torture. Um, The DeMarcus Cousin one is a great call. I mean, uh, and that kind of was a a pave-the-way moment for guys like Joel Embiid to take shots at people, right? Like Cousins was sort of a trailblazer (laughs) on the like – calling out people you're probably not supposed to call out and like airing dirty laundry that you're not supposed to air. Uh, We should give Cousins credit for that hallmark. Yeah, well, and not only that, I also think, I don't know whether players came out of the woodwork to side with him that week or DeMarcus's comment prompted other media members to like dig through history and find other players calling George Carl a snake. But Cousins was not the only one. And so it became like, a chorus of players shitting on George Carl that week. And then also led to like the most awkward photo uh, of the summer when they like reconciled at summer league uh, like a couple weeks later. So all in all, one of, one of the best moments in NBA internet history. And uh, yeah. And let, let's not forget George Carl had this self immolation too. I mean, remember he really went out, like he tried to write the book and call various people out. And he, like, Kenyon, <laughs> Kenyon Martin got angry. And it's another example of the, the difference between when you're big in Denver versus when you're big in LA. Cause George Carl had his Rocky and exit, to the NBA as Phil Jackson did in terms of how ugly it got and how everyone turned on the old guy, just like Phil Jackson. And yet we talked about Phil Jackson a hundred times more than we talked about George Carl. 
And, uh, you know, prior to this email, when was the last time anyone mentioned George Carl to you ever? <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. But I miss the old snake in the grass. Um, uh, no, I don't. That's a lie. I don't miss George Carl at all. Um, haven't thought about him in years. Uh, <laughs> Matthew says, have you guys ever written a piece together? And if not, why not? Um, so oh, the answer to this is that we have, technically, if you recall, Ben, really? we wrote uh, the preview to oh. the NBA season like two years ago. And this is something that like our editor, Matt Dollinger, suggested I help out with. And I was like, sure. Like it was a list of reasons to get excited for the season. And then I email with Ben and Ben, this is something that you do every year <laughs> and it's like 77 reasons to get excited for the NBA season or, or do you add a reason every year? Yeah, it's whatever year it is for the NBA's history. So it's the 70th season. It's 70 reasons to get excited about the That's NBA. Right. Now, obviously the 69th NBA season presented some challenges for us. So we had to make <laughs> it like 70 <laughs> just to round up. So we didn't get into some headline issues there. But uh, yeah, the the issue was, you know, I've been doing this with Rob for years and years. You know, Rob and I, maybe we suffer from a little bit of group thing. So we get excited about things like Paul Millsap's new start in Denver. Yes. And, you know, you're throwing you're throwing stuff like, you know, Jamal Crawford's moon ball <laughs> attempts, whether or not he makes it. And it's like, you know, we're not really excited about that. He's been making 40% of his field goals for the last decade. There's There's not a story there. But we had some clear philosophical differences. Well, it wasn't just that, though. I think our biggest philosophical difference was me being like, I don't know why we need to have 78 reasons. I I don't think our website even supports that much text. I don't know why this needs to be that intense. And uh, and you being like, no, man, it's tradition. We do this every year. And so I was really it was it was a good window into the work ethic that makes you insane uh but it was uh it was fun i i can't say i mean we didn't do it again this year but we should. yeah it was a one-year experiment <laughs> yeah. that nobody regretted <laughs> giving up yeah, on. yeah so i don't know we'll reunite for a joint piece at some point in the future um i i do think though that is a pretty bad idea i mean writers are kind of like ball hog point guards in a way. You know, I'm I'm including myself uh, in that scenario. It doesn't work if you have two. I mean, it's a very rare combination, and it takes very unique circumstances where you can have two different voices really mesh. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think basically all writers are essentially Russell Westbrook in their own mind. Uh, I think there's a lot. I think that's why a lot of media members, you know, tend to support him uh, maybe even more than they should because writers – you know, it's such a thankless craft that you have to believe that you're really, really good. You have to believe that your voice matters. You have to believe that you're bringing insight that nobody else does. And you have to believe that you're smarter than your editor. Otherwise, it just basically doesn't work. And, you know, at some point you're going to just give up or think that you're a failure or succumb to depression or whatever else it might be. And that's why it's very difficult to have co-bylines because, you know, two people with that same mentality are guaranteed to, uh, you know, run into each other. Head yeah, first. well, we'll always have the podcast and that's what that's what matters most. So on that note, uh, I will talk to you later in the week. Email us at openfloormail at gmail.com. And thanks, Ben. Great conversation, Andrew. Thank you for having it. Thank you for hosting me again on this wonderful <laughs> podcast. Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Please, guys, the reviews really do help. Uh, It helps us spread the word, reach new listeners, and take our message to the entire Open Floor globe. As Andrew said, send in questions to openfloormail at gmail.com. Until later this week, Andrew, I'll talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. 
Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.